Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 27. Daniel 8, verses 1 through 27. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in, the, in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold... A male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him. And he struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven." Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. Sorry, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for, a time, for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Now, like I told you before we opened up with our prayer, there's a lot here. And this chapter has some of the most debated passages over the years among Bible scholars. And we're going to get into what that is in, in a little bit. But let's begin by going back to the last verse of chapter 7. It's important for us tonight to kind of pick up where we left off last in chapter 7, verse 28. Where we ended up last week was Daniel said at the end of his first vision, Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, if you remember, the book of Daniel 
The first chapter is in Hebrew. If you found the, the manuscripts, original manuscripts, the first chapter is in Hebrew. And then once you get to chapter 2, verse 4, second half of verse 4, it changes to Aramaic. And all of chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 28, is all in Aramaic. And chapter 8, verse 1, to the end of the book, in chapter 12, is all back in Hebrew again. So the book of Daniel starts in Hebrew, jumps to Aramaic. Jump to chapter 2, verse 4, and let me just show you where it jumps. And go to Daniel 2, and look at verse 4, the second half. We'll start in the verse, the second half of the verse is where it jumps to, to Aramaic. Chapter 4 says, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, from the point where it stops saying in Aramaic, that next word, O king, live forever, from that point on, chapter 2, verse 4, second half of verse 4, all the way to 728 is actually written in Aramaic. And then chapter 8, verse 1 and following is written in Hebrew. Now, I agree with most scholars as to why that the Aramaic section is there. The Aramaic section deals with things pertaining to God revealing himself to the people of the Gentiles. And the conclusion of Daniel's prophecy deals with God's deliverance of the people of Israel. Thus, it's written in Hebrew. So the book of Daniel is written to the Jews, of course. And so it starts off in Hebrew. But then when you get to chapter 2, verse 4, the second half of that verse, all of a sudden, from there on till the end of chapter 7 is in Aramaic. But if you remember from our study so far, all of that's been dealing with God revealing himself to the Gentiles. The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. The Daniel and the lion's den story. The handwriting on the wall for Belshazzar. All of that whole section has been dealing with God showing himself to the Gentile nations. Now, when you get back to chapter 8, and Daniel's got this next vision that we're going to get to tonight. It begins to move even more now to the dealing with how God is going to rescue Israel and deal with Israel. And we're going to deal with that tonight. He touched on it a little bit at the end of chapter 7, with the, the end of the, 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 the one like the Son of Man being, approaching the Ancient of Days and being handed the kingdom. But when we get to chapter 8 and following, as you're going to see tonight, and once you get to chapter 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, it's going to be dealing with how God is going to rescue Israel. Now... Daniel, the Bible, though, says here in chapter 7, verse 28, is greatly disturbed by his vision of the four beasts, and especially the fourth beast that he saw. He's so alarmed that it says here in verse, chapter, chapter 7, verse 28, that his color changed. Any idea what you think, what color his face changed to? Probably pale. Probably pale. Let me say something to you. Well, first, before I say that, let me say this. We've seen this color change phraseology already in Daniel. Go back to chapter 5. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Jump down to verse 9. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Uh, we're pretty sure we know what's going on there. When he sees God's hand right on the wall, it scares him so much he goes white, starts shaking. Daniel is so disturbed by the vision that he saw of the four beasts, and especially the fourth beast, which is the Antichrist kingdom, which was so terrifying, Daniel went pale. Let me say something to you here. I wrote it in my notes this way, and I want you to hear this. If a man who has spent a night in a lion's den and not bothered is bothered by the coming Antichrist kingdom, so should we be. Now, as you've already heard me say, and I'm going to say over and over, if you're in the church, you won't be here when the Antichrist is revealed and all those things. But we need to take very serious what is to come. We have family. We have friends. We have people that we care about that need to know what is coming. As you're going to see tonight at the end of our study, some of the things we don't fully understand, but we're still to tell people what the Scripture says. Just tell them what it says. Don't try to explain it all because we don't have to understand it. And the Bible actually says that those prophets a lot of times didn't understand the things that they were talking about. Did Daniel understand the visions that he saw? 
No, he's still struggling with it. He's alarmed by it. And we see at the end of our section for tonight, he's greatly disturbed and he doesn't understand it fully. Yet he had a responsibility to pass it on because when it's going to be revealed, it will be revealed and people need to know. And so even though they wrote about things that weren't going to happen in their lifetime, they had a responsibility to pass it on. And even though we in the church aren't going to be here during the tribulation period and all those things, the book of Revelation was written to who? To the church. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ to the church. Why? Just like Daniel was given a vision of what's to come, even though it wasn't going to happen in his lifetime, the church is now the prophet, if you will, the messenger to the world of what is to come. Folks, Jesus has come to the earth. You, you all know that, right? He's coming again. But between now and when he comes again, the prophecies say there are some things coming, and they're so horrific that Daniel who could spend the night in a lion's den and not be bothered, is freaked out by what he saw. Go to Luke 21. Listen to the words of Jesus himself. Luke 21, verses 34 through 36. Jesus says, but watch yourselves. Luke 21, verse 34. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at, at all times, praying that you may have strength to, what's that next word? Escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, look, it's impossible to escape this. And those of us who are his children and in the church are going to escape this but he says that day is coming on the whole earth and it's going to catch a lot of people not only by surprise, it's going to come on them like a trap. So let's go now to Daniel chapter 8 and begin to break this down. Daniel now has another vision. It's two years after the vision he got in Daniel 7. The year now is 551 BC that Daniel writes chapter 8 or writes about what he saw, that he's writing about in chapter 8, was writing about what he saw in 551 B.C. When he had the vision in chapter 7, it was 553 B.C., two years prior to what we have in chapter 8. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, I mean, chapter 8, verse 1, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So what year was this of Belshazzar's reign? Good for you, the fourth year. It was the fourth year because they didn't count the first year of the king's reign in Babylonian counting. Daniel's now 65 years old. And even though he's 65, he still has some authority in the Babylonian government. Go to the end of chapter 8 again. Look at verse 27. And it says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So he went then, after being freaked out by what he saw in the vision that we're going to look at tonight, it made him sick, and he was bothered by it. He actually had to take a couple of sick days. But then he goes back about the king's business. So he's definitely high-ranking of some sort in the Babylonian rulership, if you will. But he can't be too, too high-ranking at this point. Because 12 years after what we just read in chapter 8, verse 27, is when the Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall happens. That night that he died, Belshazzar dies. It happens 12 years later. And go with me to chapter 5, and you'll see that 12 years later, Belshazzar had to be introduced. He appears to be ignorant of who Daniel is. Look at chapter 5, starting in verse 10. It says, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, remember that term, your father meant your predecessor, not his actual dad. Your predecessor, your predecessor, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you. 
that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and, it shall, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So 12 years after Daniel 8.27, where he says, I went back about the king's business, even though he's working for the king and he's somewhat high-ranking in Babylonian government, he's not so high-ranking that, ba- that Belshazzar knows who he is. 12 years later, he's being told, hey, you get this guy. Oh, I've heard about you. So it's just kind of interesting. At 65, he's still got some authority, but he's definitely not so close to the king that the king would already know who he was. Now, it reads a little funny, but if you look closely at the, at the Hebrew here in chapter 8, the vision that Daniel has is different than the vision he had in chapter 7. Chapter 7, the vision he had while he was sleeping. You can go back and look at it, chapter 7, verse 1 and following. He was sleeping, and he had the vision while he was sleeping, like a dream. But this time, he's awake. He's actually in Babylon, physically, But in his vision, all of a sudden, he's now taken to Elam, Persia, what we know as Iran. He's actually taken to the area where the Medes and the Persian kingdom is going to be headquartered, the new people that are coming in to take over. And he's taken to Susa, the citadel, and he's by the banks of the Uli Canal. So in the way in the Hebrew, if you read it in English, it sounds like he was sitting there in Elam at the bank of the Uli, and he had this vision. No, in the vision, he's taken there. Well, some of you may know this, some of you may not. Remember, Babylon, Babylon's still in power at this time. Belshazzar's still king. He's about to die 12 years later, and the Medes and the Persians will take over. That's the new kingdom that's coming. Later on in the book of Daniel, we'll already see this. And also some of the books of our Bible were written during the time that the Medes and the Persians were in control. And some of the Jews were still under their authority. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. By the way, Nehemiah was one of the shortest people in the Bible. You do know that, right? Somebody got it. There are actually three short people in the Bible. There was Nehemiah. There was Bildad the Shuhite and the guard who slept on his watch. All right? All right. Nehemiah chapter 1. Look at verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, I was in Susa, the citadel. All right, so here Nehemiah is working for the king at this time, and the king is where? He's in Susa, the citadel, the capital of Elam, which is Persia, which is where Iran is. Go to Esther. You're in Nehemiah. Just turn a couple of books over to Esther, or one book over to Esther. Look at chapter 1. Esther happened during the time of the Medes and the Persians being in power. In Esther chapter 1, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, And now in the days of Ahasuerus, I can't have a hard time pronouncing this one, Ahasuerus, the, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants and the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days to be exact. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Jump over to chapter two, look at verses one through five. 
It says, after these things, when the anger of the king Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman, woman who pleased pleases the king by be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. So I just share that with you to show that it's very interesting that Daniel, in 551 BC, when he's given this vision in chapter 8, who's sitting in Babylon, is taken by the Spirit of God in a vision to the headquarters of the next kingdom that's going to come into power, which is Elam, the Persian Empire. And he's taken to the citadel in Susa, where all that stuff's going to be headquartered. That's an interesting thing to show how God, he already sees it all, folks. You do realize that, right? He kind of already knows how it's all playing out and no kind of about it. He knows. So Daniel is taken in the spirit in a vision to Persia. And he sees a ram with two horns. One horn is larger than the other, and the larger of the two horns came up after the smaller one. We've already dealt with that. We know who the ram is, correct? Medes and the Persians. By the way, you say, how do we know? Well, I read it to you already. Go back to Daniel chapter 8, look at verse 20. The angel Gabriel tells us who it is. It's not Jim guessing. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media in Persia. And by the way, who's the goat? Look at verse 21. The goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And if you know anything about Greek history, when Greece became in power, the first king was who? Alexander the Great. And by the way, who replaced him as king? Nobody. Four generals took over, just like the prophecy said. This one horn grew strong, and then when it grew strong, it was broken off, and four horns took over, but they didn't have his power. We'll get to some of that in just a bit. Again, all through, we've been seeing God show in Nebuchadnezzar in his dream of the statue of gold and silver and bronze and so on, the kingdoms that are come. Daniel 7, Daniel's given the vision of the four beasts and so on. And now we see it again where God's showing him, hey, Babylon's coming to a close. So he's not even showing him Babylon. I'm going to take you to where the headquarters is going to be of the next kingdom. And as he's taken there, he sees this ram. Look closely at the direction that the ram goes, though. Uh, look look uh, at... Um, Verse 4, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. Never went east. Isn't that interesting? Again, if you want to double check me, you can. You can go do a historical uh, search and find out where Cyrus conquered. He conquered northward and southward and westward. He didn't conquer eastward. That's just... The prophecy even said hundreds of years before it happened, or not a hundred years before, but many, many years before it happened, and it exactly happened that way. The male goat, like we said, which had the one horn is, is Greece, and the one horn is uh, Alexander the Great. But look closely at the fact that the prophecy tells us, and Daniel's told, that the, the goat is enraged against the, the ram. Look at verse uh, six. The goat came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Now, I'm going to just give you a little bit of history. I'm going to give you a lot of history tonight, but I'm going to give you a little bit to help you understand how amazing this prophecy is. When Alexander the Great started becoming Alexander the Great and the Greek kingdom started to get bigger to the point that they wanted to take over, one of the first things that bothered Alexander the Great was the fact that King Xerxes of Median Persia 
had conquered Greece. Remember, uh, the Median kingdom and the Persian kingdom went northward and southward and where else? Westward. And they went and conquered Greece. Alexander remembered and didn't like it. And so he starts coming into power. And he starts putting together an army and he starts conquering. And during this time that Alexander the Great starts becoming more powerful, there's a king in, of, over Median Persia at this time named Darius III. And Darius realizes, oh dip, this Alexander guy in Greece is getting pretty powerful. And he decides, I'm going to use the resources I have financially in my connections. And I want to help support some people to defeat Alexander. And on top of that, he not only helped defeat Alexander or try to defeat Alexander, he was also, and this is all historically written down, a part of the plot to murder Alexander's father, Philip. And they were successful in murdering Philip. How do you think Alexander feels about Darius III? He's enraged. And when it becomes obvious that Darius is not going to defeat Alexander, Darius III decides, I'm going to make a peace treaty with him. And so Darius III contacts Alexander the Great and says, we want to make a peace treaty. You know what Alexander the Great says? Ain't happening. And he destroyed the kingdom of Media and Persia. And the Bible said that the ram, sorry, the goat was enraged against the ram, and he was. But we also saw that he traveled, the, the, the goat travels without even touching the ground. You see the verse 5, I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Again, I don't know how much you guys know. Some of you are probably more into history than I am. But let me just tell you, Alexander the Great's kingdom came into power in, in, in a speed and a rapidity that had never been seen before and probably will never be seen again in, in, except for the Antichrist kingdom. In just 10 short years, Alexander the Great conquered all of the area. You have to realize, folks, they didn't have airplanes and tanks and all that stuff to actually go and defeat all of those nations in just 10 years. Unbelievable. They were doing it so rapidly that Alexander the Great, after he's already conquered all the other areas. And by the way, when we get to chapter 11, there's going to be some very, very specific prophecies about Alexander the Great and some of the things he's going to do. It's going to blow your mind how specific Daniel is to some of the battles. But they've conquered so much land and so much area, so much that Alexander the Great says, all right, now we're going to go into India. And they go to attack India and all his warriors rebel. They're exhausted. They're just absolutely spent. And they pretty much, they have a revolt. And they say, we ain't doing it. Look, this is enough. We've just, in this short period of time, conquered all of this land. Why don't we enjoy it for a little bit? And so when he realizes that his army's not going to fight for him anymore to go into India, he doesn't go into India. And he decides to go back to Babylon. Because he's going to set up his kingdom in Babylon now. He's going to make his headquarters Babylon. And so he goes back to build his kingdom and his capital in Babylon, but he doesn't last very long in the process because of a bunch of different things that all come together, and he dies fairly quickly. Uh, one of the reasons why he died young and died so quickly is he was one of those generals who didn't just tell people where to go fight. He fought with them, and he had a lot of wounds from battles and from wars. But on top of that, he had another problem. He liked drinking too much, and he drank a lot. But he didn't just drink a lot. He also ate a lot. He was gluttonous. It was unbelievable the amount and the stories of how much he ate and how much he drank. And so with all the war wounds, with the way he took care of his body, with eating and drinking, and then he got malaria and he died. He rose to power. And what did the prophecy say about this horn on the goat, the one horn? When he gets strong, he's done. He's broke off. And his kingdom is divided into four other horns, which is four generals, and they don't have the power that he does. By the way, if you want to write down the names of the, the, uh, the generals that his kingdom is divided into, these four, uh, the four generals, one was named Cassander, 
Another one is called Lysimachus. Another one is named Ptolemy. I, I wish we could just do a spelling bee right now and have you come up and spell these names. And the last one's Seleucus, all right? Cassander, C-A-S-S-A-N-D-E-R. Lysimachus is L-Y-S-I-M-I-C-H-U-S. Ptolemy is P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. And Seleucus is S E L E. U-C-U-S. Now, the only one you really need to know about is Seleucus. Because Seleucus is the general that, one of the, that this other horn came from one of the four horns. Go back and look at Daniel chapter 8 and look at verse uh, 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. His whole kingdom was divided amongst those guys. Now, out of one of those horns, out of one of them, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Let me ask you a question. Where's the glorious land? It's Israel. Now, again, Israel's not been under their own governance during all this time, but they've been allowed to be there. But they're still under the authority of all these other nations. Here's where the big debate on chapter 8 really begins. Chapter 8, verses 9 through 27, the great debate is, who is this horn? Is it just one person? Is it referring to one person and another person? Or is it just referring to the second person? And we're going to deal with all of that tonight. But before we do, and I'll give you the names of the two, two individuals that are being debated. The first person that, that a lot of scholars think the whole of chapter 8, verses 9 through 27, just deals with Antiochus Epiphanes, who comes from Seleucid's kingdom. They think that all of the prophecy in chapter 8, verses 9 through 27, is only speaking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Other people think that, that all of chapter 8, verses 9 through 27, is only speaking about the Antichrist, the coming Antichrist that we've already had a picture of in some of our study of Daniel already, the coming ruler of the last world kingdom. There are others, though, that believe that the prophecy starts talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, but kind of merges into pointing to the Antichrist. And I'm going to tell you now, I'm in that third camp. But before I break it down and have us take a look at it, I want us to read again just that section. Listen closely and allow the Spirit of God to help you start to grasp what you think it's saying. Here's what I want you to hear. I don't want anybody saying, well, Jim says it's a picture of the two, therefore I'm good with that. No. When you stand before God, he's going to hold you accountable for everything that he's shown you. And you can't say, well, Jim taught me this. He's going to say, um, I used Jim, but I put my own spirit within you to lead you and to guide you and to teach you. So did you let me teach you or did you just follow become disciples of Jim? Folks, I don't want that ever to happen. I have a responsibility to share with you what I believe God has shown me, and I'm going to be held accountable for everything that I say. And please understand, I take very seriously my role, because I know the Bible says I'll be held in high account. But I'm also just a human. The Spirit of God is the one who helps us really understand truth. So I'm going to read to you now, chapter 8, verses 9 through 27, and you start letting the Spirit of God speak to you. Is this just talking about a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, or is it talking about the Antichrist, or is it talking about both? In chapter 8, verse 9, out of one of these other horns, Seleucus, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. 
And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said to me, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Now as for the horn that was broken in place, of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Take a deep breath. If you're a little confused, so was Daniel. And Daniel's getting taught the vision, and he's seen the vision. We're trying to picture the vision. Daniel's seen it, and he's had Gabriel himself come. By the way, I love when he said, when, when he spoke to me, I fell into a deep sleep. That means he passed out. I love it. <laughs> he passed out. He was so scared. And then Gabriel gets him, wakes him up and says, no, here, let me explain it to you. And at the end of the explanation, he still doesn't understand. We're going to close with that. So just let that sink in for right now. Like I said, some see this horn as speaking only about Antiochus Epiphanes. Some speaking it only, see it speaking only about the future Antichrist. I see the prophecy as speaking about both. You're going to see that when we get to chapter 11. It's very clearly talking about Antiochus Epiphanes and also the, the Antichrist, coming Antichrist. Now, for some of you who don't know who Antiochus Epiphanes is, he's in a very, very famous world figure. From Seleuc Seleucus's kingdom came this man, and Antiochus is a ruling name, and he gave himself the second half of his name, Epiphanes. Anybody want to take a wild guess at what Epiphanes means? Manifest God. Antiochus Epiphanes named himself Manifest God. In other words, God in the flesh. And he declared himself to be God. He actually is an amazing pretext, if you will, and future picture of the coming Antichrist, which we've already seen a lot of things about him. But he actually went and he went into the temple in Jerusalem. He actually erected a statue of Zeus in, in the holy place, and he offered pigs on the altar. And there are a lot of Bible scholars that think that Antiochus Epiphanes is the fulfillment of all the prophecies about the coming Antichrist, but I'm going to show you from Scripture that Jesus says no. But I believe that the prophecy starts talking about this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, how he's going to come from that one horn, and he's going to go and conquer toward the south and toward the north and toward the glorious land and to the east. But Antiochus Epiphanes was defeated 
by humans during the Maccabean revolt, revolt and all this kind of stuff. The prophecy says that this individual is going to be defeated, but by no human hand. The prophecy also said that this individual, this horn, is going to go against the prince of princes. By the way, who's that? It's Jesus. I think personally, and I'm going to show you from Scripture where I'm coming from on this, and I'm going to, we'll deal with it more when we get to chapter 11 as well. I believe that the prophecy starts talking about Antiochus Epiphanes and his coming, but ultimately just kind of starts prophesying about the last days. Isn't that what Gabriel told him? The vision is about the end of days, and it's the time of the end. Go with me to Jeremiah 51. I'm, not, I'm going to try not to read as much as I read last night so I don't lose you. I think I lost a couple of people last night. In Jeremiah 51, we're going to start in verse 11. By the way, if you have a heading on your Bibles, what does the heading over chapter 51 say? The other destruction of Babylon, what does yours say? Okay, Babylon judged for sins against Israel. You do realize that the headings on all of our Bibles are not inspired? That man's put those in to help us understand and find things. But this prophecy in chapter 51 is about the utter destruction of Babylon. But at the time that the prophecy is given by Jeremiah, Babylon's still in power. But listen to what it says in verse 11. Sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the king of who? Of the Medes. Because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Set up a standard against the walls of Babylon. Make your watch strong. Set up watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both planned and done what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. And then it starts giving a prophecy about the judgment that's going to come to them. And because of how they treated Israel, like Allison just said, her Bible pointed out to. Look at verse 24. And I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I'm against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. Set up a standard on the earth. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations for war against her. Summon against her the kingdoms, Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a marshal against her. Bring up horses like bristling locusts. Prepare the nations for war against her. The kings of the Medes with their governors and deputies and every land under their dominion. The land trembles and writhes in pain for the Lord's purposes against Babylon stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. Now, it's interesting. Who did God use to bring the present at that time judgment on Babylon? The Medes and the Persians, just like the prophecy said. But let me ask you a question. When the Medes and the Persians came in, did they continue living there? Yes. They moved their headquarters to Elam, but people still lived there. Daniel's still in power. And as you're going to see, he's still going to be ruling with the Medes and the Persian kingdoms. Yet the prophecy said that Medes and the Persians are going to be used in judgment. Yet when he brings this judgment on Babylon, they're not going to even use a stone to build a foundation. It's going to be a desolate waste and no one will ever live there ever again. By the way, you do a little research, you'll find Babylon's being rebuilt right now. Has been ever since Saddam Hussein was captured. What's going on here? Well, if you understand prophecy, one verse could be talking about one time period and another verse talking about a totally different time period. I'm sorry? Even partway through a verse. And we're going to deal with that when we do our study later on on one of the cruises. The next cruise coming up most likely is going to be a study of the book of Revelation. And I'm going to spend a whole study telling you how to deal, how to study prophecies. Before we even get into Revelation, we're going to do a whole study on how to study prophecy. Because I could quote one too that you all understand. You know, Jesus goes into the, the synagogue in, in uh, uh, Nazareth and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. 
And he opens it to Isaiah, what we know as Isaiah 61. And he starts reading the prophecy, Behold, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointing me to preach good news to the poor, and so on. And he stops reading in the middle of a verse. Because that verse, verse 2 actually says, Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Yet he stops reading in the middle of the verse, says, Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Doesn't say, and the day of vengeance of our God. Leaves that off. Rolls up the scroll and sits down. And he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, how come he didn't read the rest of the verse? The rest of it won't happen until he comes again. We all understand that very clearly. Did you catch what you just said? The first half of the verse is talking about one time period. The second half of the exact same verse is talking about another time period at least 2,000 years later. We understand that. Understand this. I believe this prophecy is going to be the same way in Daniel 8. is the same way. It starts talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, but it just starts talking also about the coming Antichrist, who's going to be defeated by no human hand. And he's going to come into power. But what did the prophecy say? Not by his own power. We know whose power he's going to have. If I were to take you there, we're not going to do that for the sake of time. If I were to take you to Isaiah 65, and we started in verse 17, and just read chapter 65, verse 17 through 25. Listen closely what it says. It says, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered nor come into mind. And then verse 18 says, Behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. And then it goes on and says, and when he rebuilds Jerusalem, if anybody dies at 100, they'll be considered an infant. And a, a, a sinner will only, you know, will be, if anybody dies at 100, they'll be considered accursed. And hang on for a second. I, I, I didn't think anybody was going to die in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, they won't. Verse 17 was talking about the new heaven and the new earth, which is after the millennial kingdom. Verse 18 starts talking about the millennial kingdom. That's why people get so confused, because they just assume that it's all together. And that's not how prophecy works. If you were to take the time, and I don't have time to do that now, but if I take the time and go look at Psalm 22, David is writing about his anguish. But he starts by saying this in Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, God, I cry out day by day, by day and night, and you don't listen. You don't answer. But then later on in that same chapter, as David's writing about his anguish, he also goes on and says this. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. All my bones are out of joint. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've cast lots for my clothing. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They say the, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Wait a minute. When did David ever have his hands and his feet pierced? When did David have his bones all out of joint? When did David have his tongue stick to the roof of his mouth? Oh, what happened was while David was writing, the Spirit of God began to prophesy through him about Jesus. And listen closely. Nobody was going to read David's prophecy or David's psalm in Psalm 22 and say, Oh, that's talking about the coming Messiah. You, they wouldn't understand it. But listen. If you knew David's psalm and you had it in your heart, if you were alive at that day when you were walking by the cross and you hear Jesus call out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of a sudden you'd go, hang on, that's Psalm 22 verse 1. He just said, I thirst. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Wait a minute, all his bones are out of joint as he's been hanging there on the cross. They pierced his hands and his feet. These guys are over here casting lots for his clothing. And you would understand this was talking about this. And that's why we're to study prophecy. We're to put it in our heart. That's why the book of Revelation says, blessed are those who study the words and read aloud the words of this prophecy and take to heart what's written in it because the time is near. Folks, we have a responsibility to look at prophecy, allow the Spirit of God to show us what we can understand and to be okay with the stuff that you can't. I, in my role, am going to suggest to you that chapter 8, verses 9 through 27, begins talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, Manifest God, who was an amazing picture of the coming Antichrist. But I believe that the prophecy starts talking about the time of the end, like Gabriel says. And the rest of it's talking about the coming Antichrist. Oh, and by the way, I have some really good backing. His name is Jesus. Go to Matthew 24. Go to Matthew 24. 
I'm name dropping right now. Go to Matthew 24. Listen to what Jesus says. Now keep in mind, when Jesus says what he says here in Matthew 24, Antiochus Epiphanes has already lived and died. Antiochus Epiphanes lived between Malachi and Matthew. During that 400 years of what we call the 400 years of silence, the intertestamental period, around the 160s BC is when Antiochus Epiphanes was in power. So almost 200 years after Antiochus Epiphanes, Jesus says this in Matthew 24. Remember, he's been asked about the time of the end and his his coming back, and he starts laying out the tribulation period. Look at verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Listen to what Jesus said. hundred years after Antiochus Epiphanes. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. You better run. And I actually think that a thing that doesn't make a lot of sense to some of us is going to make a ton of sense to the Jews at that time. I think that's going to be the thing that clicks. Because remember, they're going to make the covenant with the Antichrist. They're going to think everything's okay. And he's going to seem like a good guy for the first three and a half years. But all of a sudden, just like the prophecy in Daniel 8 said, he's going to quickly become bad. And he's going to, well, Jesus called it the abomination of desolation, correct? Go back to Daniel chapter 8. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes what? Desolate. All right? And the giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. Jump over to Daniel chapter 9. And he, and we're going to get to that when we get to this section of chapter 9, he The Antichrist shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Jump over to Daniel chapter 12. Look at verses 11 and 12. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. So here we see three times this term desolation or abomination of desolation in two of the three times mentioned in Daniel pointing to this man, the Antichrist, and Jesus after Antiochus Epiphanes had already died, speaks of the abomination prophesied in abomination of desolation prophesied by Daniel as still future. So, is Antiochus Epiphanes the fulfillment of the prophecy of the end? Can't be. Because Jesus said it's still future. It's still coming. And folks, would we not agree that the world is trying its best to get everything all in one government, under one control, it's going to happen. Jesus said it would. What should we be doing? Trying to stop it? No. We should be telling people about Jesus and telling them to get ready. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back, folks. And we have a responsibility. By the way, the prophets in the time that God was telling the nation of Israel, I've already decided you're going to be taken captive. The prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah were told to tell them it's going to happen. It doesn't matter whether you try to stop it. It's going to happen. And the sooner you understand that, the better it'll be for you. But what did they all say? No, no, no. Peace and security. Peace and safety. We don't want to listen to those guys. Throw them in a pit. Throw them in a well. You know, beat them up. Jeremiah hated his job. 
because the Jews didn't want to hear it. And trust me, the world doesn't want to hear. That's where we're going. The church doesn't want to hear. That's where we're going. And there are those who don't like the fact that I say, that's where we're, Jim, you need to be fighting for America. You need to be fighting for the church. We're supposed to change the world. Jesus didn't say that we would change the world. He actually said, narrows the road that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find it. And our role is to tell people this is coming and you can escape it through faith in Jesus Christ. But it's going to happen. Now, as we close tonight, there's this question of the 2300 mornings and evenings. And like I said, I've read, read commentators who think they've got it figured out. And I've got other commentators who think they've got it figured out and they have a totally different answer. I got others who think that the 2300 morning and evenings is actually talking about only around 1150 days because a morning and an evening is actually two different ways of saying just one day. It's just crazy. They get all these math figured out and they try to make it work with Antiochus Epiphanes and all this stuff. But the Bible says that Gabriel told Daniel, seal it up. It's not to be understood till the time of the end or many days from now. And Daniel chapter 12, when we get to the end of chapter 12, you're going to see he's told the same thing. He still doesn't understand as he's given more pictures of the end times and the end of Israel and the return of Jesus Christ and not the end of Israel, the end for Israel and the return of Jesus and all. But listen closely. He's told, seal up the words. But Jim, wasn't John told in the book of Revelation not to seal up the words? That it's now to be understood? Yes, but not all of it. Not all of it. Go to Proverbs 25 and look at verse 2. Proverbs 25, look at verse 2. It's the glory of God to conceal things. But the glory of kings is to search things out. It's to, how is it to God's glory to hide things? Very good. It shows he's bigger than we are. Let me put it to you as quickly as I can and as simply as I can. I'm not smart. I'll be honest with you. People say, oh, Jim, you're so impressive. You, you get the Bible memorized. No, I love the word. I live in the word. And the spirit of God brings it to my remembrance as I teach it and preach it. But if you ask my wife and kids, how's dad's memory? They will say, if you ask dad a question with, do you remember when? The answer is always going to be no. I'm not kidding you. Many years ago, we were driving through on a preaching trip and had our kids with us. And we stopped at my sister's, my wife's sister's house and her husband. And we just happened to be staying with them overnight on their 10th wedding anniversary. And they decided they're going to pull out their video of their wedding. And so they pulled out the video. We're all sitting in the living room and they pull out the video. And I see my little girls walking down the aisle as flower girls. I said, you girls were flower girls? They're like, Dad, you don't remember this? It's only been 10 years. I'm like, I don't remember this at all. And then all of a sudden, the camera flips to the stage, and there I am performing the wedding. And I said, I married you guys? I didn't remember. And that happens a lot. Some of you people are engineers, and you can figure out how rockets can get to the moon at a certain time and calculate the orbits and not hitting all the space junk and all that. That makes my head hurt. But you know what? I'm so glad that I don't know as much as God. It's to his glory that he knows stuff I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to be able to know everything God knows because that means he's got my intelligence. I ain't much of a God. Oh, but don't just sit back and say, well, God knows. No, it's the glory of kings to keep searching. But be okay if they say to you as you're asking if God says to you, not for you to know. If you look at it later on, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 says that the prophets in the past who were giving visions and understanding and prophecies about the coming time of Christ in the church age longed and searched intently to find out when these things were going to happen. And they were told it's not for you, but it's for another generation. Aren't you glad they wrote it down? Aren't you glad they shared it? There's a lot of stuff that we're studying that we're not going to be here for, but we have a responsibility to know it and to pass it on. It's going to happen.
Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, the things revealed to us and to our children. I personally don't think the full understanding of the 2300 evenings and mornings will be understood until the very time of the end. Here's what I want to share with you that God opened my eyes to last night while I was teaching it. Remember what I read to you tonight in Matthew 24, verse 15? When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then it says, let the reader understand. I think for years I've wrestled with that. What does that mean, let the reader understand? I think what it's saying is those who see the fulfillment of the prophecy and have read it and studied it, they'll understand. Just like I told you, if you knew Psalm 22 and you were alive at the time of Jesus on the cross, that prophecy would make a ton of sense. In the same way, there's a lot of things that we can know. There's a lot we don't. And that's okay because he will keep showing us things And if there's stuff we don't, let it go. Because all of you have a problem. I have the same problem. We want to be God still. And we want to understand it all. And some of us get frustrated. I don't understand it. Well, I'm okay. You know why? Because Daniel says at the end of chapter 8, I saw it. Gabriel explained it. Gave me a bellyache. I took some sick days. And I still didn't understand If Daniel didn't understand, I'm okay. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.